Welcome to the Shift Gold Friday Gold Wrap, your overview of this week's precious metals news. It's Friday, April 8th. I'm your host, Mike Mary. Thanks for tuning in. So I've come to the conclusion that the people over at the Federal Reserve suffer from delusions of grandeur. And the markets and the pundits and people in academia, they all enable this delusion. This, you know, is an actual mental illness. So basically, I'm saying Jerome Powell and Lyle Brainerd and the whole lot of them are nuts. Now, I know that's not very nice, but where's the lie, right? WebMD defines delusions of grandeur as the belief that you have more power, wealth, smarts, or other grand traits than is actually true. And really, a lot of politicians and bureaucrats suffer from this kind of delusion, right? You might call it hubris. They legitimately think that they are smart enough to centrally plan and micromanage the economy, and I mean, to a larger extent, your life. And they can't, at least not very well. But they're going to try because, well, delusions of grandeur. Economist Friedrich Hayek explained theoretically why central planning always fails. He called it the knowledge problem. It's simply impossible for one person or even a small group of people to know all of the information necessary to centrally plan the economy, much less your life. So even if you've got the smartest people in the world in one room, they still wouldn't possess all of the knowledge necessary to really effectively plan things. And from what I've seen, these people are not the smartest people in the world. I mean, they didn't even see that this inflation freight train was coming down the tracks. I saw it. I mean, granted, I'm no dummy, but I'm certainly not among the smartest people in the world. So let's talk about the Fed's plan to fight inflation. I want to focus specifically on balance sheet reduction because that was kind of the big news coming out of the central bank this week. Here's the bottom line. The Fed says it's about to shrink its balance sheet. I say it can't. And I'm going to explain exactly why I think that, hopefully without getting too wonky. So on Tuesday, Federal Reserve Governor Lyle Brainerd came out saying that the central bank is about to shrink its balance sheet, and it's about to do it big time. Now, Brainerd is the nominee to serve as vice chair, so her voice carries a certain amount of weight. Uh, It certainly spooked the markets. We saw a big sell-off in stocks and bonds after she uh, made this little announcement. So what did she say? Well, basically she said that the Fed is going to raise rates methodically and shrink its balance sheet at a considerably more rapid pace than it did during the previous tightening cycle. Quote, given that the recovery has been considerably stronger and faster than in the previous cycle, I expect the balance sheet to shrink considerably more rapidly than in the previous recovery, with significantly larger caps and a much shorter period to phase in the maximum caps compared with 2017 through 2019. Now, First, let me pause and address this notion that the recovery is considerably stronger than it was in the previous cycle. The data belies this strength. Peter Schiff has been talking about this a lot on his podcast. We're getting a lot of economic data that eh, not so great. 
And the fact is, whatever strength that the economy does appear to have right now is purely the result of all of the monetary stimulus that's been dumped into the system. The monetary stimulus that the Fed is now saying it's going to take away. The fact is, it's not that the economy is stronger than it was after 08. It's just that the Fed has managed to blow up an even bigger bubble. So anyway, back to the balance sheet reduction plan. Brainerd said it is going to go considerably more rapidly than it did last time. So when was the last time? What is she talking about? Well, it was after the 08 financial crisis. So let's revisit that for a moment from the perspective of the balance sheet. After the 08 crash, the Fed pumped up its balance sheet with three rounds of quantitative easing. The Fed expanded its balance sheet from under $1 trillion, it was between 8 and $9 billion at the time, all the way to $4.5 trillion, which was unprecedented at the time. When the central bank started QE, then-Fed Chair Ben Bernanke swore that the central bank was not monetizing the federal government debt. Debt monetization is when the central bank buys the debt with money printed out of thin air and injects that money into the economy. But Bernanke said that's not what the Fed was going to do. He said that this was different because they weren't going to keep the bonds on their balance sheet forever. Balance sheet expansion, he said, was an emergency measure, and the Fed was going to eventually sell off all of the bonds it was buying, thereby pulling the newly created money back out of the system. So that would not be, uh, technically speaking, debt monetization. As it turns out, the Fed didn't even get around to balance sheet reduction until 2018. I, I guess they might have started in, in late 2017, that's what Lyle says, but if you look at the actual graphs, you don't see any significant dip in the balance sheet until you get into uh, early 2018. And even at that, it shrank the balance sheet at a relatively slow pace. By the time it ended tightening, which was in August 2019, the balance sheet was just below $3.8 trillion. So the Fed shed about $700 billion from its balance sheet in a little more than 18 months. So why did the Fed abandon tightening in 2019? Well, because in the fall of 2018, the stock market tanked and the economy went all wobbly. The markets and the economy couldn't even handle the modest monetary tightening that the Fed managed to implement. Now, it's extremely important to remember that the Fed resumed QE months before the pandemic. Although they didn't call it QE, it was, you know, that good old QE that's not QE. But this is significant because I think in most people's minds, we had the pandemic and the government shut down the economy. And so then the Fed responded by doing all of this extraordinary monetary policy. And that's not altogether true. Even before the pandemic began, the Fed had already abandoned raising interest rates. It was cutting interest rates, in fact, three times in 2019, and it had abandoned uh, balance sheet reduction and was back to QE. The balance sheet was expanding. So by the time we got to the pandemic, the balance sheet was already back above $4 trillion. So now over the last two years, the Fed has added another $5 trillion to the balance sheet, expanding it to nearly $9 trillion, and here we are today. 
So back to Brainerd. Again, she indicated that the upcoming balance sheet runoff will be considerably faster than last time. Now, of course, she didn't say exactly what that means. Fed people are notorious for throwing out vague terms that can be interpreted any which way and, you know, that they can later say, oh, yeah, we did that, even though they didn't really do what they you know, what everybody thought they meant they were going to do. Uh, they play a lot of word games. But but regardless, she really didn't define it. But we can get an idea of what the Fed is talking about because it's spelled out in the Fed minutes that came out that the day after uh, Brainerd did her uh, little talk. Um, so basically, according to the minutes, the plan is to reduce the balance sheet by about $3 trillion over a three-year period. This would leave the balance sheet at $6 trillion, so up $2 trillion from the pre-pandemic level and more than $5 trillion above the pre-2008 financial crisis. So much for Ben Bernanke's promise that, no, we're not monetizing the debt. Clearly, they were monetizing the debt. They're continuing to monetize the debt, and they're going to monetize the debt in the future because that's the only way the federal government can continue this crazy borrow-and-spend policy that it operates on. So, you know, Bernanke, the the dude was either lying or he was wildly mistaken. Uh, And either way, it really doesn't say much for the efficacy of our intrepid central planners, right? So stepping back to look at the bigger picture, the Fed's plan is really relatively modest in the big scheme of things. If it sticks to this plan, and of course it can change it at any time, it can abandon it, or it could conceivably uh, run off the balance sheet even faster. I don't think it will, but it could. But let's say it does stick to the plan. It's going to shrink the balance sheet by about $1 trillion per year. Now, really, this isn't a torrid pace, but it's certainly faster than the uh, pace of tightening back in 2018. But here's the thing. I don't even think it can accomplish this. Think about it. If the central bank couldn't run off $700 billion in 2018 without popping bubbles, shaking up the economy, making the stock market crash, what makes anybody think it can decrease its balance sheet holdings by $3 trillion this time around when we have even bigger bubbles and even more debt in the economy than we did then? This only works in your head if you have delusions of grandeur. So, Let's look more carefully at the mechanism of all of this because, you know, I'm not basing my skepticism about the Fed's ability to run off its balance sheet purely on, you know, my own speculation. The process of balance sheet reduction makes it extremely unlikely that the Fed can accomplish this goal when you actually look at the nuts and bolts of what it's doing and the reality of what we have in the economy. Now, first, you have to understand how and why the Fed expanded its balance sheet to begin with. Through quantitative easing, the Fed buys U.S. Treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities with money created out of thin air on the open market. So, for our purposes, we're just going to talk about uh, U.S. Treasuries, but basically the same mechanism occurs in the bond market with these mortgage-backed securities. A little bit different, but I really want to focus on Treasuries. Quantitative easing accomplishes two important things for the U.S. government. First, it injects currency and liquidity into the economy to juice it, and by that I mean inflate bubbles. And then second, it reduces the supply of bonds on the market and holds bond prices artificially high. It's a function of supply and demand. 
And bond yields, interest rates, are inversely correlated with bond prices. So when the price of a bond rises, the yield or the interest rate paid by that bond falls. Propping bond prices up through this artificial demand effectively keeps interest rates low. So QE benefits the federal government in two ways. It allows the U.S. Treasury to sell more bonds to finance its deficits because the Fed is out there buying bonds. It's absorbing some of the supply and keeping demand higher than it otherwise would be. And it also keeps the government's borrowing costs low by artificially suppressing interest rates. Obviously, if you're borrowing a lot of money, you want low interest rates, right? Balance sheet reduction or quantitative tightening, QT, reverses this process. Now, the Fed can shrink its balance sheet basically in two ways. Typically, the Fed rolls over bonds on its balance sheet as they mature. In other words, uh, as, as one bond matures, it will take the money the government pays them for that bond, and it will go out and buy another bond. So it keeps the balance sheet stable. So the Fed can shrink its balance sheet simply by letting the old bonds roll off the books without replacing them. Now, this is a relatively slower way to shrink the balance sheet. The Fed can decrease its bond holdings even faster by simply selling them outright on the open market. So no matter how the Fed shrinks its balance sheet, it creates a big problem for the federal government. And if you're thinking ahead, you can see the issues here. If the Fed sheds $1 trillion in bonds from its balance sheet over the next year, that means the U.S. Treasury will ultimately have to find buyers for $1 trillion in additional bonds. That's on top of the $1 trillion or so in new bonds it will have to sell to finance the annual deficit. I'm assuming that the deficit is going to be around $1 trillion. I'm being wildly optimistic, but we'll go with that for now. And it's also going to have to sell new bonds to replace maturing bonds that are currently out there in the market. So, you know, if you have bought a treasury, you know, a five-year treasury, you bought it five years ago and it matured. Matures, um, the federal government's going to give you money for that bond, and now it's going to have to borrow more money so that it can pay you for the bond that um, that just matured. I mean, that's basically how this whole Ponzi scheme works, right? It borrows money from a new guy to pay off the old guy. So we're talking about three to four trillion dollars in bonds that will need buyers over the next year as QT gets rolling. And again, I think I'm being optimistic in those numbers. Now, this raises a very important question. Who is going to buy all of these bonds? I'm going to pause here and let you ponder that question. I mean, it's not like the Fed is a small player in the Treasury market. It ranks as the second largest holder of U.S. debt behind U.S. individuals and institutions. If the Fed is out of the market and it's actually shedding some of its holdings, who is going to fill the gap? Where will the Fed find buyers for an additional $1 trillion in Treasuries every year for the next three years on top of all of the new bonds it's going to have to sell to finance its massive deficits and all of the government spending that's coming down the pipe? Because you know Joe Biden is going to keep spending money, right? And then the Fed still has to, to replace those maturing bonds. You know, so the Fed was in the QE game to begin with to prop up the bond market. What happens when it pulls out those props? Because effectively, that's what it's doing. 
And here's another little twist on this. What if China decides it doesn't want to hold a bunch of U.S. debt? You know, it's the largest or the second largest foreign holder of U.S. debt behind Japan. You know they've been watching how the U.S. has sanctioned Russia. I mean, if I were them, I'd be wary of holding a bunch of dollar-denominated debt. Heck, I'm not them, and I'm wary of holding a bunch of dollar-denominated debt. And, and this, all of this... That's not the only problem. Supply and demand dictate that as the Fed dumps bonds onto the market, supply will rise. And what happens when supply rises? Price falls. That means yields will have to rise. Interest rates are going to have to go up to entice people to buy all of these bonds. So you're going to have cheaper bonds, but you're going to have higher interest rates being paid out because you know nobody's going to buy some bond that's going to pay them nothing. Uh, there's just too many of them out there. They're they're less valuable, right? This creates another big dilemma for the U.S. government. Rising interest rates mean Uncle Sam's borrowing costs are going to go up. It's the same problem you would have if, let's say you have a uh, uh, an adjustable mortgage and your mortgage rate starts going up. That's a problem. It pulls money out of your budget. Or, you know, if your credit card company raises your interest rate, the U.S. government is going to have to pay more money to finance its debt. In fact, our technical analysis guy just wrote an article yesterday reporting that the annualized interest on the debt was up over $16 billion in just six months. That's going to skyrocket if the Fed actually follows through with this tightening cycle. So that means the Fed is going to have to borrow even more money in order to pay the interest on all of this debt, and that means even more bonds on the market. This is going to ripple through the entire financial system and the broader economy. If people are enticed to buy 3 or $4 trillion in U.S. Treasury debt, where are they going to get that money? Well, they're going to have to sell something else. So, you know, we're going to see, not only that, back up a second, not only that, you know, a lot of things are tied to uh, Treasury bond interest rates, mortgages and, and commercial loans and bonds. All of this is tied together. So you're going to see this massive shakeup in the debt market. This is not good news when you have an economy that is effectively built on borrowing and spending. I mean, we saw how tightening impacts the economy back in 2018, and they're talking about tightening magnitudes more than they did then. I mean, here's the bottom line. Here's what I'm driving at. The Fed can talk about balance sheet reduction all at once, but talking and doing are two different things. It can talk, but there is no reason to think it can do. So here's the question. What do you do? You need to be prepared. You need to be prepared for either a major tank in the economy, because if the Fed does keep going with tightening, even as the economy is shaking, you're going to have a massive recession, if not a depression. And I still don't think they'll get inflation under control. So, you know, Peter Schiff's made the case that we're heading towards stagflation. Or it's going to get a rickety economy and it's going to turn right back to QE and start printing money again, which means at some point the bottom falls out of the dollar. Either way, I want to hold some gold. And you can do that. You can find out how. You can find out what benefit it will be to you by talking to a Shift Gold Precious Metal Specialist. Call 1-888-GOLD-160 or email them at info at shiftgold.com. And they'll look at your investment situation. They'll look at your portfolio, your goals, and they'll show you how you can preserve your wealth in this crazy time by 
investing in precious metals. So do that today. So I know I spent a lot of time on one subject today, and uh, now I'm running long, but I, I really think it's important for people to wrap their heads around this. So I wanted to try to explain it in a way uh, that people who aren't you know, really into the nuts and bolts of monetary policy can understand because, you know, you, you talk talk about the Fed, you talk about central banking, most people are like, ugh, boring. And it is kind of boring, but it has a tremendous impact on your life because it is directly impacting your wallet. So it's important for people to understand this. We need to spread the word about this. People need to understand just how pernicious central banking is. Because, you know, the government's going to blame Russia. Uh, the problem is not Russia. It's not supply chains or pandemic. It is the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government working in tandem, devaluing your money, running you into debt, and, and creating all of these distortions in the market. So, for now... That's a gold wrap for this week. You can get more details on all of these stories and more. And, of course, keep up with the latest precious metals news and analysis throughout the week over at shiftgold.com news. If you haven't done it already, you can subscribe to the Friday Gold Wrap. We're on the Apple Podcasts. We're on Stitcher. We're on uh, the YouTube channel. Links to all of this stuff on the show notes page. Um, you can always email me. M. Meharry, M-A-H-A-R-R-E-Y, so M-M-A-H-A-R-R-E-Y at shiftgold.com. Love to hear from you. Um, appreciate folks that have, have uh, written in. And um, with that, I'm going to wrap this up. I hope you have a fantastic weekend, and uh, I'll talk to you again next week. Hopefully, we can talk a little bit about how Russia has shown the importance and the value in owning gold. Have a good weekend.